0: But you know better if you have glanced at the bulletin insert, because in fact, during the month of January, I want us to invest our Lord's Day teaching time exploring some fundamental concepts that are important for all Christians and all churches, but especially so for those of us believers that make up Tangwood Bible Fellowship. Next Sunday along that line, we're going to look at the POGs, Purpose, Objectives, and Goals of TBF, also known as 2015, Here We Come. Uh, Lord willing, in two weeks, we're going to be discussing cussing. Every teenage kid, every upper elementary school kid who's a Christian or being raised in a Christian home needs to hear this content, not necessarily me do it but I can remember as a teenager who played baseball and golf at a competitive level wondering, why doesn't anybody help me with this? I mean, all my friends are talking like sailors, and no, you're not supposed to do that, but exactly how does this work, and why shouldn't we do it, and how, why is this so bad, and etc. So we're going to talk about uh, what good Christians should know about bad words. Teenagers need to be here. Some of you have heard me done this, do this message before. It'll be new and improved. But it's actually been like four years since I've done that message. But it's, I just I think it's very critical because the decision for people who are raised in Christian homes, the decision whether or not they're going to cuss when mommy and daddy aren't around is the first major moral decision they decide to make on their own. And if they decide to make it and they're able to compartmentalize their life with their friends and stay Uh, apparently uh, on the right side of the line when they're at home around their pastor, etc., they're learning how to be practiced hypocrites and then it becomes a slippery slope for other things. So I think that is an area we need to draw a line on, give you all kinds of good reasons why you should stay on the right side of the line, emphasize God's grace if you've already crossed it. Uh, So I'd say all teens and all golfers if you play golf, you know what I mean, need to be here uh, in two weeks to hear that, uh, teenagers, if you've got some friends you've been wanting to talk to about this, drag them to church that Sunday. Normally we don't ask you to drag people to church, that last time I checked, uh, the word tells us as a church to go into the world doesn't beg the world to come to church. But I really think this is going to be worth the price of admission, which will be actually fifteen dollars that week. Also, no, yeah, you know, it's pretty. And then by the way, that same Sunday in second hour. Uh, Ron's given me permission to go back and talk to the youth group about um, what every Christian teenager should know about Islam in 30 minutes. And then hopefully we'll have some discussion on the cussing message also. The last Sunday in January, Lord willing, we're going to look at the life of Christ A through Z. Uh, wouldn't it be great if somebody organized the 26 major events in alphabetical order and could cover all that in lesson. 45 minutes, maybe 47 and a half. And then um, the newsletter suggested four different books. We might look at Judges, Leviticus. I really was thinking of that. I'm really challenged by some things I've been learning in Leviticus. But we're going to go ahead and, and, uh, Lord willing, in February, begin a survey of the book of Acts. Okay? So that's where we're going. Today we've got a very special message along that line. But before we dive into... What we don't do does define us. Uh, let's pray for our teachability and for our troops. And you know we're blessed to have people like Matt Sanford in our church and David Moore. And you know it's it's terrific that David could teach so well and so passionately and so accurately last uh, Sunday from this very pulpit. And then David records it, and then David and Amanda Birch put it on the website. And then I noticed it was on the website within a couple hours, but I didn't get a chance to listen to it until Monday or Tuesday. But I just thought it was outstanding. David really does a wonderful job of explaining the text. It's the text that matters. It's the Word of God that matters. It's not all the other stuff we do as preachers so much. And uh, it was a blessing. So uh, I made David the Hero of the Week. And so you can put that on your resume or something. Maybe, maybe that'll... It'll mean something, somebody in the army, right? But uh, we're very blessed to have you guys part of our church. So let's pray for those who protect and service, and for our teachability to this content today. Father, uh, I pray you'd do spiritual heart surgery on everybody in this room and help us to get a better feel for some of our distinctive as a church without self-righteously criticizing or demeaning churches that do some of these things we don't do. Help us to have the the agape love for our fellow believers that maybe differ in some of their distinctions than we do. But help us to understand, appreciate, and revel in some some of the things we do with intention, with biblical motives that I think you have honored, clearly, uh, for 38 and a half years now in this corner. Uh, And so we thank you for that. We pray for those in our active military, our police officers, Uh, firefighters, peace officers I should say. Father, you know who they are, men and women as they serve and literally put their lives on the line. We think of these police officers, especially now in the heated uh, climate of our culture that's spinning out of control where we're vilifying uh, peace officers and lionizing drug dealers uh, and prostitutes. It's an amazingly sad uh, scene as we look at our cultural landscape, but I pray, especially for those who are believers, if they're in the military or uh, putting on a blue uniform to be a police officer or firefighter, whatever it is, that you'd strengthen them, encourage them, protect them, protect their testimony um, and give them uh, uh, a magnified positive effect with their fellows and, and with all those they interact with according to your purpose and your will for them. Father, thank you for each one who's here in this building today, and we thank you for the privilege and the freedom we've got uh, at this moment in time to meet and to think biblically about some of these issues. I pray you'd be glorified in the process and the product of that, uh, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, to to help fully warm up our capacity for abstract thinking, which, Hayden, you know you need to do to understand the Scripture, I'm going to show you uh, one of my favorite Top five list: five good things about my thinning hair. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm starting to lose my good looks. So, uh, you know, you got to look at the half full part of the glass. Uh, I don't have time to get into this today, but on Christmas Eve, I was attacked by a Methodist <laughs> handrail on the way up to the balcony for a Christmas Eve service, and for a week, I looked like Gorbachev. I had this big thing on my forehead, but I must be in pretty good shape because it just healed up like just a little over a week. So that's that's good. But uh, back to the mundane mundane things of life. Five good things about my thinning hair. Number five, when jogging at night, I don't need to wear reflective headgear. (laughs) Headlights just bounce right off of it. I save big money every year because I never have to buy expensive new hairbrushes. And they are expensive, right? Number three. (laughs) He's seen it before. He knows how funny it is. Uh, Almost every day, my mailbox overflows with colorful flyers from the Hair Club for Men. Number two, I'm no longer constantly mistaken for Justin Bieber, (laughs) which used to be such a pain. And finally, number one good thing about my thinning hair, I'm 100% free of the fear that I might have a bad hair day, because every day is now a bad hair day. (laughs) But I had hair when I needed it, And that's me and Debbie. Many years ago, a lot of people think that's when we got married, but that was actually two years after we got married at my sister's first wedding. She's been married multiple times. I didn't officiate. I was just a lowly dental student at that point. So it's not my fault. Um, I want to talk today about what we don't do as a church does define us. And really what I'm talking about is our distinctive philosophy of ministry or kind of our church culture. And let me kind of start here. And I really believe this with all my heart. And I hope you understand where I'm coming from on this. Uh, I'm not up here saying we don't do these things that we're better than everybody else or they do those things that they're inferior to us. I don't, I don't think like that. But I do notice some of our di- dif- differences and they're on purpose. They're, they're intentional And we've got our reasons, and I think they're good reasons. So as the pastor of this church for, what, uh, 26 years now plus, I believe that TBF is a good church because it has solid biblical foundations, and it's got a 38-year-plus track record. But it's not the only good church in the Duncan area, and it's not even the best church for everybody in the Duncan area. And I totally understand that, and please don't misunderstand anything I say because sometimes I, I get going... And because I pick up the fact some people are losing me, I I try to try to be funny, and I have a dry sense of humor. So sometimes I sound more sarcastic on the audio than I mean to to be, and I cringe when I listen to it. So I'm going to try to be uh, transparent, as transparent as David was and is, and just I love this church, but I want for for the Capital C Church in Duncan to be uh, green, to be healthy. All the churches need to be green and healthy. I'm, I, I don't like hearing about church splits anywhere or church blow-ups and all that stuff. Uh, I don't think, oh, wow, you know, if they have a blow-up, some of those people will come over here. I don't think like that. Plus, it doesn't work that way in Duncan anyway. So, but that's, that's where I'm going to start. Now watch this. Um, that's the way God sees his church, and he likes it. And in a, in a small way, Tangled with Bible Fellowship kind of looks like that because we're a group of believers in Jesus Christ from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds, united by our faith in Christ as Savior and a desire to grow and reproduce spiritually, especially by focusing on Bible study, fellowship, worship, prayer, evangelism, and world missions. So if you look at our mission statement, which is always on the front of the bulletin every week, it says something like this, our mission is to glorify God, not to promote the current pastor's uh, ministry. Glorify God by actively participating in the ongoing fulfillment. No one church, even Campus Crusade Christ, is going to fulfill the Great Commission. We're all going to participate in that until Christ comes back. By participating in the ongoing fulfillment of the Great Commission as a body of believers in Jesus Christ, who collectively and individually as a team and also as individual players, serve our Savior, not just the Board of Elders or the Deacons or Brad, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ and one another. We just sang about that, a couple of those songs. Functioning as a spiritual greenhouse such that by our interactions together we're catalyzed to grow and reproduce spiritually. Now, you know, I worded that statement 20 years ago, and I remember Alan Duell said, that sounds like something Halliburton would say about themselves. Well, I didn't know they were a spiritual greenhouse, you know, Halliburton, but I knew what he meant because it was kind of in vogue to come up with uh, mission statements. But, so I, I like the way that's worded because that's my wording. But I would say the vast majority of evangelical churches would not have a problem with that essential statement. They might word it a little differently. They might pick at it here or there. That doesn't make us that, all that distinctive. What makes us distinctive is the fact that we've endeavored now, and I don't get to use the word endeavor very often, so I enjoyed that. We've endeavored now for the last 38-plus years, and I've been here for 26-plus of it, uh, to fulfill that mission by not doing certain things that most good churches do, including not passing offering plates, not giving altar calls, not having any kind of formal church membership, not having a written doctrinal statement, and not having formal bylaws. Now, some people say you can't have a church with all that stuff, without all that stuff. And I'm saying, we do, and we can And we got our reasons. We're not unaware of the fact that most churches have a formal membership kind of thing. We do these things for a reason, not because we're better or more spiritual, but because we think it makes sense. So let's think about these and walk through them briefly. Talking about offering plates, uh, the guy walks up to the pastor, still no money, but a lot more IOUs than usual. So... Uh, offering plates. We don't do offering plates. What does that not mean? It doesn't mean that those who do are bad or evil or second-rate or inferior to us. I mean, goodness, probably 99% of all good churches in America pass offering plates, as does uh, Iglesia Bautista Jerusalén, my second favorite church in the world, Tomas's church in, in Mexico. They pass an offering plate. But look at Matthew 6. You know, passing offering play is fine, and it can be efficient. And um, after I got attacked by that Methodist uh, handrail on Christmas Eve, uh, which was a Wednesday, I think, if I remember right, uh, last Sunday at 9 a.m., they, the Civil Street Baptist Church used to start Sunday school at 9.30. During the football se- NFL football season, you know what time Sunday school starts? Nine o'clock. Because they want to be done with everything by eleven thirty, so they can go see the pre- pre-game show. That's a sounds like a good idea to me, but that's just me. Um, but yeah, last week at nine o'clock, I was teaching the senior adult two ladies Sunday school class, and and uh, Debbie was there, and uh, there wasn't a the dry eye. And how, I can, t- I can t- tell you this for sure: uh, that Sunday school lesson had a happy ending because they were all happy when I ended. So I'll just tell you that. Now, let's see what the Lord says about giving in Matthew 6, 1 through 4. He says, beware, just as a general principle, verse 1, of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Don't don't do the right things for the wrong reasons, trying to impress other people. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father who's in heaven. And then he talks about giving and praying and fasting. Let's just look at the giving part. So when you give to the poor as a specific example, but could be giving to anything part of the kingdom. Today we're talking about giving to the local church. Do not sound a trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets. Don't call attention to yourself and how generous you are. Uh, And they do that so they may be honored by men. Truly, I say, they get their reward in full when other people are impressed by them. But when you, my disciples, Christ says, give to the poor or give to the local church or give to whatever you're giving to Do not, as it were, this is hyperbole, of course, but the point is, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving will be in, what does your translation say? Secret. So your giving will be in secret and your Father who sees what's done in secret will reward you. I'm just saying, offering plates aren't secret. And for me, uh, it's hard. I'm not, I, I can't go visit churches on Sunday. I have a job on Sunday. I have to be here, so I can't do that. Uh, but, uh, when I do go to other churches, uh, including Methodist Christmas Eve services or Seventh Street Baptist Church, it's hard for me to let an offering plate go by and me not put something in it. On the other hand, I'm not a big giver, for, I, I'm a big giver to TBF and a few missions, and that's, I'm, I'm not gonna give them a whole lot of money, but it's just hard for me. And I'm not trying to impress anybody, I just don't wanna not contribute, you know? So, I'm sure you can use offering plates with the, the correct attitude, and probably most people do, but for me, It's such, to me, we're just going the extra mile to promote grace giving. If I had more time, I'd go to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 that talks about, uh, don't give under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver and give what you've purposed in your heart. And Jesus says do it in such a way it doesn't call attention to yourself. And to me, I mean we literally have people who visit this church and decide they're probably going to stay with us and they're with us for a month or two or three, and they'll walk up to me or Ron and say, hey, how does this church get its kind of financial support? You know, Because you know, what they're saying is, I, I never see an offering plate. And you're going to say, well, let's see that box on the back table. It's usually behind a big flower and you know, behind a bunch of stuff. You kind of work your way through the paperwork, and they sign up lists, and there's a box there, and you have the privilege to, to support this thing to the extent you want to. I don't know who gives or how much anybody gives. I don't want to, because I'm so corrupt. If I knew the Wanders were giving five thousand a month, I would probably be highly motivated to be nicer to you than you deserve. <laughs> and if I knew that Steve was giving five dollars a month, I probably would be tempted to be less nice to you than you deserve, okay? So I don't want to know who gives what, but the Lord knows. And our treasurer Ron knows, so just so you'll know, he he knows. But uh, to me, it makes so much sense. And my question would be: Has it worked? Now, pragmatism should not be the ultimate test of truth, but has that worked for thirty-eight years? Has that worked, Homer? Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Now, we're not a mega church and probably won't ever be, but we, the Lord has met our needs through the uh, gracious, generous, not-under-compulsion giving of believers that feel like this is worth supporting. And I think that gives God a lot of glory. And I don't want to brag about that. We don't talk a lot uh, all about money here, uh, although I'm willing to talk about it. And I have one of the passages that we're teaching deal with it. And I've often said if we ever had a major financial crisis, I would talk about money because I would think you'd need to know, Right? But uh, we don't really talk about money very much. We don't pass offering plates. Uh, but we don't want to, we're not bragging about it, but we're not unaware of the fact that that's kind of the normal way churches function and, and stuff like that. There's also, you know, when it comes to money, most American unchurched people say the reason they don't want to go to church is all the church ever talks about is money. Um, and so we weren't, we weren't responding to that 38 years ago when they decided to do a box instead of offering plates. But however that was decided, I think it was a very... Uh, Neat decision, can I say that? In a theological neat sense. And I think God has honored our commitment to go the extra mile to promote grace giving and giving for the right reason, uh, that kind of thing. Um, I don't think any of the... Some of the stuff people do, once you become a professional Christian, go to seminary and become you know, a minister, you kind of notice trends out there. I don't think any of the churches in Duncan have ever done this, to my knowledge. But I remember when we were in Shreveport... I used to watch the PTL Club with Jim Baker, not for theology, but it just looked like a, a, a an accident waiting to happen. And it unfortunately did happen. But I remember um, they were big on the give to get kind of concept. And for a while there, they did this six-month tithing pledge. Now, I'm not, they didn't think about your church very much, but they said, if you will tithe and send us your tithe for six months, And if after six months you feel like God hasn't replaced the money for you and given you more money than you give to us, we'll send it all back. Now they got that from a guy named Benny Hinn. And Benny Hinn was interviewed one time about that. And he said, it's a no-lose situation. They said, how can you do that? He said, it's a no-lose situation. People who take the pledge, we take their offerings for six months and we put it in an interest-bearing account... So let's say after six months, they want their money back, okay? We give them their money back, we got the interest, okay? If they don't want their money back, they're entrenched. They're going to keep giving, you know? And I went, no, that's you know, that's not the right way to do it, man. I mean, it's ridiculous. So there's all kinds of gimmicks out there. but uh, And, hey, we're not perfect, but I think we're pretty good uh, in that area. And that's why we don't do offering plates. Second thing we don't do is alter calls. That doesn't mean we don't present the gospel. We don't invite people to trust Christ. Um, what we're trying to do there is avoid confusion and emphasize the fact salvation is not by our good works, including walking in an aisle, signing a card, joining things, quitting things, promising things. It's not by good works. It's for good works. Good works are the fruit, the effect of salvation, not the cause or the root of it, and We don't give altar calls, but we do share the gospel from the pulpit and throughout the church services, I think. Uh, To me, as Martin Luther said, John 3.16 is the gospel in a verse. God the Father, the author of the plan of salvation, loved the world full of sinners so much that he sent his only son, second person of the Trinity, the active agent in salvation, who the incarnation, Christmas, became the God-man, one person with two natures, right? Fully God, fully man. Died for our sins, rose again, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the gospel. We, we typically share the gospel. We invite people to respond to the gospel, but we don't ask them to walk an aisle. Now, people will go, well, golly, doesn't Jesus say you're supposed to confess me before men? Yeah, he does. But you'll never, ever find a, an American altar call anywhere in Scripture, and when the Lord's talking about Carol, for some reason, you guys, you guys are over there, usually. So, you, you, so you're standing out for me. That's a good thing, um, unless you don't want to be mentioned. But let's say, you know, it, for Carol to confess Christ before men isn't walking in front of a group of believers who are going to applaud you for walking down an aisle, right? Confessing Christ before men happens, teenagers, on prom night businessmen on business trips out of town where nobody knows who you are, on the golf course after you've shanked that third wedge, things like that. You know? So, yeah, I'm all for confessing Christ before men, but he's not talking about an altar call. Now, what, now, altar calls are such a deeply ingrained part of American evangelical culture across the fruited plain. People forget, or they just don't know, there were no altar calls until about 1830. I'm not making this up. Charles Finney, a very flamboyant American revivalist who had a very weak theology, uh, sounded like salvation by works when you analyze his preaching, uh, he kind of invented the altar call. And it was very controversial at the time. Most of the church was saying, we can't do that. Nobody's ever done that before. Uh, I like it. Have you seen the movie uh, Chariots of Fire? Uh I could I could really talk about that for a long time, but but just one little thing about Chairs of Fire*. Uh, Eric Little, the the runner that uh, is the center of the story, in the first part of the movie, he's in a kind of a local track meet, uh, which he wins because he's the world's greatest runner. And but the track meet was kind of designed to draw a crowd for evangelistic purposes, and he preaches a short, very very specific gospel message. And then he just walks away. He doesn't beg them. He does, they don't play just as I am 17 times. They don't beg them to walk down an aisle or shake his hand or something. Because Eric believed, as I do, if it's real, it'll really be expressed. But confessing Christ before men isn't coming in front of a bunch of people. Now, if that's the church culture and you do that, that's okay. I don't think that doesn't necessarily messed it up. On the other hand, I've, I've talked to a lot of people as a pastor for 30-plus uh, years who tell me when I was 8, 10, 12, 29, I walked down an aisle, I signed a card, I joined a church, but I don't know if I'm saved. <laughs> Help me. Uh, well, let's talk about whether you trusted Christ, because that's the issue. Before, during, or after you walk the aisle. So uh, I'm not um, trying to vilify those who do that. How? In uh, last Sunday, uh, at the end of the 7th Street Baptist Church service, uh, the pastor gave an invitation to walk the aisle. And uh, this couple walked down the aisle, and she seemed pretty emotional. I thought, hey, maybe she's convicted of sin and has just trusted Christ or wants to talk to him about it or whatever. And no, they were just moving their letter from one church to another, which is fine. And that's the way that culture processes that, and that's fine. There's no, nothing wrong with it. But just historically, from the church history angle, this is a relative, relatively recent thing and it's not essential to salvation, and it, sometimes it causes some issues that you're better off avoiding anyway, where people are 50 years old and they're not sure they're saved, but they know they walked an aisle, stuff like that. Um, what don't we do around here? Well, uh, we don't do offering plates. We wanna, does that mean we're against giving? Hey, Clay, you know what? The church pays me a salary. I'm very much for people giving to this church, Okay. Believe me, there's no secret agenda there. Altar calls, I'm very much interested in people coming to faith. But I remember when a guy named David Bearden called me very distraught and wanted to talk to me, and I thought, oh, my goodness, does he have a brain tumor or what? And this guy, powerful guy, one of the best basketball players I've ever played with, um, was very convicted of his sin and wanted to trust Christ, and I had the privilege of seeing that happen. And uh, he didn't walk an aisle before, during, or after, but uh, he has been saved, sealed, and delivered and blessed with a world-class wife. Church membership, we don't do or have formal church membership. And most churches do in America, and that's that's cool. There's no problem with it. We're not saying those who have formal church membership are wrong or bad. Sometimes I think it might might be a good thing to do that, and then I uh, pray through it and I decide it wouldn't be. Because, uh, you know, listen, our attendance patterns, let's talk about our attendance patterns, shall we? After watching this thing for 26 years, really, the only pattern is there is no pattern. (laughs) Now, there are are some patterns. Actually, you guys will will probably break the the pattern. But January, (coughs) excuse me, in February, quite often are some of our best attendance months. I think because there's less extracurricular stuff going on. Now, if we get an ice storm or something like that, that affects it. I was wondering about this week, because I thought there'd be a lot more people out of town, but this is a, a nice group. Uh, and for me, listen, let me tell you, this: since this is kind of in-house, and we'll be on the World Wide Web in three hours over in the world will listen to it, right? But um, my mother listens to it. But uh, I never, ever, maybe this is why I'm not rich and famous, I never, I, I remember as a as just a layperson watching the minister on the front row, just rather than worshiping, he'd always be looking back and counting how many people were here, you know, and I thought, hmm, I don't want to do that, you know, if I'm ever a minister instead of a dentist. But uh, <laughs> I never get up there and think, who's not here? Oh, my goodness, there's not as many people as I expected or, you know, I, I'll tell you this, I'd much rather speak to 5,050. It's just It's exciting to speak to 5,000. I did that once at Duncan Stadium. I've spoken to 500, 1,000 a couple of times. You know, just from from the jazz, adrenaline thing, it's exciting to talk to 1,000. It's more fun uh, once you get over the terrifying fear of getting in front of that many people and trying to say something. Uh, It's more fun to do that than with 50. But I never get up there and think, oh, my gosh, you know, we just got a handful. I don't care. And, And I'll never get up here and say, well, we don't have any people here today, but... You know, because I was always the dum dumb that would actually show up as a lay person when other people wouldn't because it was too hot, too cold, too rainy, too dry, whatever it is. You know, it's always an excuse. I was always one of the five that showed up, and I hated it when the preacher said, Well, nobody's here today, but I, I, I'm here, you know. So uh, I never think like that. Now, sometimes on the way home, driving home, I go, Oh, wow, you know, I just saw them in Walmart. Well, I haven't said this in a while, but. One of the bad things about being a minister is I went through this period of like five years. Every time I bump into somebody on a Saturday and they went out of their way at the end of the conversation they, to say, see you tomorrow, 95% of the time they weren't there the next day. And I noticed that pattern and I thought, hmm. You know, the first couple of times I thought, they must be in the hospital. They must have been in a car wreck. You know, and you check, you just drive to the emergency room. You know, where's Dr. So- where's so-and-so? They go, they're not here. I said, oh, Okay. And then you know you bump into them at Walmart a week later and say ah you know we decided to become Baptist or what now it's not like that but <laughs> but yeah so you know don't tell me on Saturday you're coming unless you're coming you know you don't have to tell me that you know but I'm gl- I'm happy if you show up you know but uh, talking about church membership the th- and in theory having a formal church membership I think is asking for an extra level of uh, expressed commitment to the local church and I'm very much for you all being committed to this church to the extent you want to be. But this is not a cult, okay? You can leave anytime you want to. People used to say, you know, isn't it sad when people get mad and leave, Pastor? I say, yeah, it's always sad when they get mad and leave. The only thing worse is when they get mad and stay. That's really bad. That's the bad part. But, you know, we don't keep you here. We don't beg you to stay. But, uh, yeah, I want you to be committed to this thing. I mean, I am. I wouldn't have stayed 26 years if I wasn't. And um, I hope you will be too. But the idea, I think, in, in having formal church membership is it implies a higher level of commitment. And typically, the church I grew up in, the denomination I grew up in, you kind of sign a church gov- covenant, and each local church has a slightly different statement of that. But it emphasizes they expect you to show up for the major services and do this, that, and the other, give your gifts and stuff. So you sign that, and you promise to do that. And sometimes when we go through periods when you're thinking, does anybody care? Is anybody listening? <laughs> Maybe we should have membership. Let's force them to sign something that they can break, you know, after they sign it. And then I realized, you know, in the church denomination I grew up in, to this day, at First Baptist, uh, excuse me. (laughs) Yeah, I was Baptist. Okay, I'm recovering Baptist. But uh, at First Baptist Tulsa, when we go up there a couple times a year and I teach Jamie Sunday School class, uh, 7th Street Baptist, great denomination, love the Southern Baptist Convention. They're doing great things. They've done great things. They're big. They can do a lot of stuff we can't do. I'm glad they're out there, but I can tell you for sure, you ask any honest Baptist pastor what how, how big's your church, meaning how many members you have, it'll be a number, okay? What's your average attendance? It's about 50% of that atten- of that number or maybe less. So you have whatever 500 members and your average attendance is 150, okay? It's always a it's a percent percentage of that which tells me signing that thing doesn't necessarily make people come, you know? So yeah, I want you to be committed to the church, and I'm not vilifying those who have formal membership, and it kind of blows some people's categories when they ask. I remember several times people say, well, how do you join? We want to join this thing. And I say, well, we have a functional membership, not a formal membership. We, you're as much involved as you want to be. If you're a believer and kind of buy into the mission and kind of our our uh, philosophy ministry, we want you to be here. We want you to be committed, but you vote with your feet and with your gifts and your involvement. So... Um, and I think that's biblical and I like it, but I'm not, uh, theologically opposed to church membership, but we don't do that. Okay? So I know some people think, well, golly, they don't pass offering plays, altar calls, church membership. Brad probably just has never heard of these things, right? No. They weren't doing these things before I got here, okay? And we're not doing them for a reason, you know? Uh, no written doctrinal statement. Uh, what does that not mean? Well, it doesn't mean that those who have one are wrong. And it certainly doesn't mean TBF has no doctrinal convictions, okay? that's not It doesn't mean that. And, and believe me, uh, Mike Kempen, our first pastor, could have written easily a 100-page doctrinal statement, right? Dr. Leitner, the interim, taught at Dallas Seminary for 30-plus years, theology. He could have written a 500-page doctrinal statement. And the current pastor, what's his name, could probably write a 100-page doctrinal statement. We, we could do it. But we have reasons we don't. Uh, that's the reason we don't. Uh, this is a group of believers from a wide variety of denominational backgrounds. Armenians, Calvinists, and Amaraldians, okay? Premillennialists, amillennial, amillennialists, and panmillennialists. It's all going to pan out in the end when Jesus comes back. That's what the panmillennial view is, right? Uh, that's what we are. That's what we want to be. That's the way we process things. That's what we look at. Not the only way to do church. Having a very specific doctrinal statement can be very handy. And some people are convicted to do that, and God bless them. That's fine. There's nothing wrong with it. But that's not our vision, our uh, value as a church. And I think what struck me, I, never, I don't remember anybody telling me this. I just kind of figured it out on my own. When you look at 2,000 years of church history, it's, it becomes obvious that God the Holy Spirit has worked for 2,000 years in church history in and through believers, churches, denominations, and parachurch groups with a plethora of different views on secondary issues. Let's say, like the details of future Bible prophecy. There's at least three major schools, and then some people who I say just kind of say, I don't want to worry about the details, I just know Jesus is come back and he wins. In the end, you know, and when you look at that, it, there's Only one of them can be right. And in my opinion, a pre-trib rapture, premillennial second, return of uh, Advent of Christ, followed by a physical 1,000-year millennium is what the Bible teaches. But God has clearly blessed groups that trust Christ as Savior but have a different chart than I've got, than Dallas Seminary has. But they all have a literal second Advent. The literal second Advent is the absolute irreducible minimum. All the other details are important. I love them. I can show you how in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, Revelation, 2 Thessalonians, all that stuff fits into my chart. <laughs> okay? But John Calvin was all millennial. Okay? He's got a faulty eschatological chart on all the details except the one that really matters, a literal second advent. And John Calvin has done a lot more for the history of the church than i will ever going to do, you know? Can I get an amen on that? And if you're an Armenian, John Wesley, good Armenian guy, had he and Calvin agreed on their eschatology. They had the same chart on that. Uh, so it's obvious the Holy Spirit has not said, I can't work with that group unless it have got a 100-page doctrinal statement exactly on every little thing exactly the way I want it. Because I think we're all growing anyway. So that's kind of the theory behind that. Here's the thing. We're trying to operate consistently with who we are and respect all these other views. So, you know what, uh, when I have a specific conviction in an area that's stricter than the absolute irreducible minimums, I'll tell you what it is. I'm going to preach my convictions, not my doubts, but I'm going to give a, a shout out to the millennial view and the postmillennial view. And I know that some of you think, why does he always do that for 10 minutes every time he starts Revelation? For that reason, you know, if you've heard it 18 times, just turn it off. I'll come back. To details after that. What binds us together here is kind of the credo that St. Augustine said in the fourth century. Augustine is a, uh, St. Augustine's a city in Florida. St. Augustine is the, is the theologian. He said, when you look at the church, this is before denominations happened, he said, what we got is this. In the essentials, there's unity. In the absolute, irreducible minimums, doctrinally, morally, we have unity. In the nine essentials we've got liberty, okay? You you're, uh, have every right to hammer out specific understandings of Scripture and of lifestyle that are stricter than Scripture. And if those are your convictions, let's say uh, Sunday's the Lord's Day, you don't think you should watch sports on Sunday. God bless you for that conviction. I I just, I don't have that same conviction, okay? But I never look uh at you as inferior if that's your conviction. If that's your conviction, you should go with it. Let every man be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul said, some people focus on certain days in a special way. He may have been talking about Jewish festivals through a New Testament lens. He may have been talking about birthday parties. We don't know. He's general. He said, other people see every day alike. Let every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. So we treat you like adults, okay? We're going to respect our backgrounds, our, our distinctives. We're going to emphasize the essentials, enjoy our liberty in the non-essentials, and in all things charity. So the way he said it when you translate it in English is, in the essentials, unity, in the non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity, which meant love, agape love. Now, next week when we talk about the POGs, purpose, objectives, and goals of the church, I want to do a little dissertation on what the seven uh, a-I-M, what's that stand for? Absolute Irreducible Minimums of Orthodox Christianity is from a doctrinal point of view. You see the seven labels there. When it comes to from doctrine to duty, from belief to behavior, I would say in general broad strokes, we've got the big two in the Ten Commandments appreciated from a New Testament perspective. The big two are what? What is Jesus is asked, hey, basically, what's the upshot in uh, a practical level of the Old Testament, of the Scripture. And what did he say? Well, you got to exegete Ezekiel 38 and 39 just right, or you can't have the Spirit. Is that what he says? What does he say? Here's essentially what it says for the believer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. That's the big picture. Now, the details come as we study Scripture, a lot of details, right? Or you go to a marriage conference, you find out about love and respect, right? Uh And then the Ten Commandments, uh, we'll talk about this in detail next week, but, you know, the the Old Covenant was like spirituality on training wheels, waiting for the fulfillment of the atoning work of Christ. In the New Testament, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We're not under the Old Testament law. However, uh, nine of the Ten Commandments are restated in the New Testament as commands. Come back next week and tell me which one is not because I'll tell you then. But uh, that's a cliffhanger, okay? Now, talking about holding on to uh, convictions, even though we don't have a written doctrinal statement, there is a trend to kind of dumb down everything in the evangelical church. And, and I am a man fundamentally committed to preparing and serving full-course spiritual meals to a generation that craves spiritual junk food, okay? But I found this cartoon. I could have written it, but not as well. But uh, this is uh, the the sign in front of the light church. 24% fewer commitments, home of the 7.5% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute worship services from beginning to end. We have only eight commandments, your choice. We use just three spiritual laws. Everybody knows Bill Bright came up with four, but they dropped one. And we have an 800-year millennium. Now, really, the millennium's a thousand years, but they kind of—they're you know, making everything easier. Uh, everything you've wanted in a church, and less. And I know that's—that's that's in vogue now. You can't you know—it's kind of like we're selling widgets. Okay, let's do market research. Let's find out what the world wants. They want dancing elephants. Okay, find a passage that has dancing elephants, and if you can't find one, read it into Ezekiel somewhere. None of them understand what it means anyway. Let's get the dancing elephants in casino night and let's see if we can draw a crowd. Hey, we got a crowd. Great, you know. Let's give them the tithing challenge and see if they'll send us some money, you know. Uh, Benny Hinn get, be gone, you know. i got to get a hurt in a minute. Now, the fact we don't have a written doctrinal statement means the pastor, that would be me, and the elder board have an important and ongoing watchdog function. Now, I'm a Nederland bulldog, so I yeah, that was our high school mascot. But uh, we're watchdog. Now, what does that mean? Well, I could give you several examples, but I'll give you the short version of the one I like the best because you couldn't make this up. But I think I think uh, Sean and Lisa were here when Gwen, Gwen Shamlin came up with her first book called The Way Down, W-E-I-G-H, Diet. And that book, as it was promoted, was, hey, rather than some kind of calorie counting thing, make uh, self-control and eating and exercising a, a part, an expression of your spiritual walk, you know? And I, To me, yeah, that makes sense. That's, that's why I've always thought about it anyway. Maybe I should have written that book, you know? But uh, she wrote this book, and everybody went nuts over it over in the evangelical world, including us. We had a couple ladies, hey, have you read this book? No, what's it about? It's about focusing on this from a spiritual perspective. Can we do a seminar? I mean, it wasn't like a big one like you're going to do. It's like In the back, they had a meeting on, they had to kind of come through the back door because there's a wider door, but no. No. See, I knew I'd do that. I knew I'd do that. But anyway, you know, and we did this for six months and people were losing weight. I think Maxine lost some weight. Remember that? Yeah, if I remember right. Well, and then guess what? After about six months, we found out that Gwen... Whether or not her exercise stuff worked was a heretic who denied the Trinity and taught salvation by works, and also taught that only her group had the gospel. I'm not making this up. I'm going to give you a short CT Christianity Today article, and then equip.org, which is Chris, Christian Research Institute. Watch this. Shamlin's weight loss programs were initially very well received within Christian churches. Tens of thousands of churches in many different denominations use her materials to teach her faith-based weight loss program in the late 1980s and early 1990s. Controversy, however, (laughs) arose when she began to teach that the doctrine of the Trinity was not biblical, which means Jesus is just a person, just a human being. That's all that means. Um, Shamlin made it clear that she does not believe Jesus is God. This led Thomas Nelson Publishers to cancel the distribution of her second book. See, for me, b- basically, I can't read everything that's out there. So if, if Zondervan, Moody, or Nelson publishes it, I know they vet all their, re- all their writers and authors. They always make sure. So I wasn't going to read that book about weight loss, but at the time I was like running 18 miles a day and was about 100. Remember, I, I went through that period. I was 120 pounds or whatever. Uh, wasn't that, But I was just a maniac for a while. Uh, You know, if it says Nelson, Zodovan, or Moody, I know it's a good book. They've vetted the thing. So I said, yeah, go ahead and do that. Well, they blew it that one time, okay? So, and it actually gets worse. Uh, I'm going to read this so I won't exaggerate. This is from uh, Christian Research Institute Journal, and it says, uh, Jesus, another Jesus, another gospel is the title of it about her ministry. According to Shamblin, that's her, she used to have kind of puffier hair here, and this is probably trendier now. This is more recent, but that's just me. Uh, according to Shamblin, it w- watch this. She had the reason for the, weight lo- for the weight loss thing was to get in and change the theology of the evangelical churches because we're all here. She, she thought we were all corrupt. She admits to this now. According to Shamblin, it was her goal all along to use her weight loss organization as an entree into Christian churches to bring in her version of the gospel. In other words, since churches were unlikely to allow her to come to them and directly denounce them as errantists errant uh, and counterfeits, she was forced to use stealth. It's kind of like I'm the only one who knows the Reformation was a fraud and salvation's by good works and Jesus isn't, isn't God, but I can't tell churches that they won't let me tell them that. So let me come up with a way to get into churches. That was the deal. That's what we found out. Uh, it was so sad that day I had to come up in the pulpit and explain all of this and we had the ladies were weeping and gnashing of teeth and i said look here's the bottom line those of you who lost a lot of weight you got to gain it all back <laughs> that's what yeah. You know. so because we don't have a doctrinal statement you didn't know that we actually believe jesus was god and salvation is by grace right but anyway yeah so so she said uh, she says quote she's more upfront about it now there's too late for the last 20 years, I had concerns about the state of the church, and my response was way down, which was a message that brought the true gospel into the back door of the churches. That was her agenda. Isn't that sweet? Shemlin today is very open in her opposition to salvation by grace through faith. Uh, she claims that when Paul spoke against works, he was merely referring to Jewish customs. So he says, not by works means don't worry about the Jewish customs, but you've got to earn it by your own good works and other, other customs or whatever she wants you to do. Good works and personal merit are absolutely essential in Chamblin's salvation schemes. She identifies the great prostitute, I'm not making this up, of Revelation 17 as the evangelical church of the past 500 years since the Reformation. <laughs> Quote, the great prostitute of Revelation 17 is this message of salvation by faith in Christ alone. What? I've got to go tell the ladies this person is a heretic? No, Homer, you do it. Remember that elders meeting? <laughs> yeah, I've got to be the bad guy. When I actually do research and find out, I forgot how I found out, but I, just, I couldn't believe it, you know? How could a blonde teach such stuff? That's uh, just me. Uh, it goes on. And watch this. At a recent, her, her church is the Remnant Fellowship Church. It's the only true church. It's about. I think 150 people in Atlanta who belong to it, so that tells you something. But according to her, recently at one of her services she claimed that Martin Luther invented grace in 1517. He's invented it. Uh, It goes on from there, but you get the point. So, yeah, we don't have a doctrinal statement, but I think the elder board and the pastor can kind of decipher stuff like that, and and we've got a watchdog... uh, uh, per, you know, kind of function so that within uh, basic uh, biblical evangelical streams that we don't get too far off uh, into the bushes, stuff like that. Okay, we don't do offering place, altar calls, church membership, written doctrinal statements, or, nor do we have uh, formal bylaws. Now what does that mean? Uh, well, it doesn't mean that it's wrong to have policies and procedures and we have developed a certain tradition, certain traditions and ways we tend to do stuff. But it's not written down, so nobody can prove it. Uh, No, I'm kidding. Uh, What does this mean? Well, it means we're not really a religious business. We're just kind of a spiritual family, uh, informal and flexible. I guarantee you, the first century apostolic church did not use Robert's rules of order when the apostles got together. They didn't. Now, those rules can help you be efficient in committee meetings, and I get that. But the fact that we don't have 18 committees and a committee on committees doesn't mean we don't care or want to do anything. Um, I don't think the Sanfords, when you guys have family meetings, necessarily follow Robert's Rules of Order. You outrank the kids, okay? So you don't have to ask them to do the right thing. Uh, you just do the right thing. Um, yeah, so uh, the fact we don't have bylaws doesn't mean we don't have kind of traditions. Listen, uh, the elder board kind of makes decisions by consensus. It doesn't have to be unanimous. I don't know if they wanted to do unanimous 26 years ago, but I said from day one, for me, you can't make an elder board uh, have a unanimous unanimous decision on everything because even though that sounds so spiritual, uh, it really isn't because let's say you've got a carnal, foolish, unbiblical board member and he might be the pastor on a certain issue, If you say every major decision must be unanimous, you're giving everybody on the board, every individual, including the least plugged in, least spiritual person, absolute veto power in everything. And that's wrong. That's why you've got a board of elders, not just one elder. Then you'd have one guy. And uh, I don't trust your sin natures enough, even my elder brothers, to let all those guys have absolute veto power in anything, which means I don't always get what I want. We make decisions by consensus. Uh, To me, five out of seven is consensus. We've had decisions five out of seven, and I was one of the two that wanted to do something else. But once we make a decision, you know, if it denies the essentials of the faith, I'm just going to have to respectfully resign. They would never do that. But if it's some functional thing or procedural thing that I don't think is ideal, if we have a consensus of the board and it doesn't include me, I leave that meeting going to make it work. Okay? That's part of just submitting to the wisdom of the group as opposed to me having veto power and everything. Now I think, you know, if I just collapsed on the floor and cried and had a fit, maybe they'd postpone the procedure change for a few weeks, you know. <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I'm really committed to that. Um, you know, our, our soldiers understand our country is committed to civilian control of the military. Now, Depending who the president is, sometimes I don't think that's the greatest idea, specifically. However, we're committed to that. We're not a banana republic, okay? It's not the generals that run the country. It's the commander-in-chief who's elected, who's a a civilian. He may have had military experience, but when they get elected, they're civilians, you know? And to me, I've always felt like having a board of elders, not just one person, including me, especially me, make decisions, which means that a consensus may have me on the short side of the straw, but once that's decided, I'm going to make it work. And again, if they said do something immoral or deny the faith, I can't, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'd, had, I'd resign respectfully, but that's not going to come up here, okay? Uh, I don't think, you know? Um, but I'll keep an eye on it for you, okay? Okay, uh, take this home. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church That's an interesting passage, and every time we read it, we think about marriage, and we probably should, but if Christ loves the church, you can't be truly Christ-like unless you love the church, okay? Capital C Church slash Lower C Church. Capital C is the body of all believers everywhere, every country, color, and culture. Local churches. Jesus didn't say anything about local churches. Yeah, he did. He interacted with seven local churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Told him what he liked about what they're doing, told him what he didn't like. He's interacting with local churches. Christ loved the church church. If you're going to be Christ-like, you've got to love the church church. You love your uh, husbands or love their wives like Christ loved the church. Does that mean, uh, Steve, you only love and express love for uh, Janice when she's ontologically perfect? Is that the only time you can express love for her? She's not ontologically perfect. Okay? She's probably about as good as it gets next to Debbie. (laughs) However, no. You know, do you only love the church when it's perfect? It's not perfect. Okay? The local church is like Noah's Ark. A lot of times it's a big, stinky, smelly mess, but it's still the best thing afloat. Okay? So you don't love it because it's perfect. You love it because it has a function in the mind of the perfect God. So let me just finish really quickly on this. Uh, these five things we don't do can and should help us better appreciate and hopefully participate in TBF. So you don't have to wonder, why don't they pass offering place prep? Uh, Maybe Homer and Brad haven't ta- thought about it. Yeah, we, we, we do what we do for, for reasons, not vilifying those who disagree, but I think we've got good biblical reasons, right? So that's the Nike slogan, but uh, now you know about some things we don't do. And let me just say this. I'll close with this. I know I've rambled a little bit today. Um, I think TBF, you've you got to love this thing. You just got to love it, man. Um, even though it's not perfect. Because this, uh, local churches are ideal laboratories to help you, Mel, learn how to love imperfect people like you that are committed to Christ. Even though we leak some oil, we, we love our Lord Jesus Christ. So I would say we need to appreciate and respect who we are and what we do and why we do what we do without disrespecting those who differ. And, you know, I, there were a couple times I went to uh, pastor's fellowships, and honest, you know, I don't consider myself a braggadocious person. Well, I saw you once brag after a softball game when you we went four for four, didn't walk anybody for two years. Was anybody else going seasons when they were walking anybody's a pitcher? Answer, no. Um, <laughs> you know, see, I just bragged again. But... uh I don't consider myself a braggadocious person, but I remember I was at a pastor's fellowship years ago, and there's just a handful of us, and they kind of said, take what Bible fellowship? I mean, what's that? You're not Baptist, not Methodist, not Presbyterian. And I said, well, you know, we're this, that, and that. And I said, well, and I thought they'd go, wow, that's cool. You know, we don't, actually, we don't pass an offering plate. We don't have altar calls. And these guys were kind of going, <laughs> get away, you know? And I could tell it really made them uncomfortable. So I, and I wasn't bragging. I was just wanting to answer the question, but they didn't, they didn't want to hear it. And that's cool. Uh, I get that. But here's the thing, and I'll say it again. We should appreciate respect and plug into what we're doing and don't do without disrespecting those who do church differently. Uh, a lot of great churches pass offering plates and, and uh, have altar calls and uh, have doctrinal statements that are detailed and have bylaws and all that good stuff, and that's great. You know, but what we don't, and we've got our reasons. Okay, let's close with the word of prayer. Father, uh, I thank you for the way you've blessed this church, despite uh, the flaws of the pastor for the last twenty-six years. And I believe you do that uh, not because we're unique in loving the Lord Jesus, loving the Word, and wanting to do the basic functions our mission statement says, but we're we're kind of coming from a slightly different slant. And rather than focusing on denominational distinctives, which is a very legitimate way to do church, uh, we want to look at a bigger picture, kind of back off and see the way the Holy Spirit has worked in church history. And we do that respecting other traditions that do it differently on those things. But I I think you've you've honored that. Uh, We don't have 5,000 people here. And as long as I'm here, I doubt we will. But you have honored this thing. you provided for it. You've allowed it to be a, a blessing to a lot of folks. We're not a good fit for some people, and that's cool. They need to go back to a Baptist or Presbyterian or Methodist or somebody of God church, and God bless them. But I thank you for the way you have, I think, um, confirmed this was your leading for this group of people, uh, the founding families 38 years ago who got together following your lead, and I think you've honored that, and I thank you for that. I also realize that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than going to a garage makes you a car. And since we don't have formal membership, but we encourage people to participate and have fellowship and community with us, regardless of where they're coming from spiritually, uh, it can be confusing to them that we're baptizing them with our words, or our acceptance. I pray for anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart as your Holy Spirit works to convict and draw them. For anyone here this morning who's not from the depth of their heart trusted Jesus Christ alone as their personal Savior, I pray you would work uh, over and above the the, uh, words of this pastor to convince them of their need of salvation, their inability to save themselves, and of the total sufficiency of the atoning work of Christ on the cross, validated by His resurrection, that they might be saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone." And I know when that happens, when it's real, it's going to really be expressed in some ways, including uh, normatively plugging into a good local church, hopefully this one. I thank you for each one who's here. I hope this gives us a better appreciation of some of our distinctives without pumping ourselves up or looking down our nose at anybody else. We pray this to your glory. In Christ's name, amen.